We're going to be in Ezekiel 37 in a minute, but I want you to talk to your table for a minute or somebody near your table. Um, my mother never displayed anything I made in vacation Bible school. It wasn't very high quality. This is kind of the season for that. I want you to tell your table the best thing you ever made in Bible school at craft time. Now, Rhonda, Rhonda made, uh, you know, world art out of out of popsicle sticks and you probably did that too i not me i i can't draw a stick figure so talk to your table about the best thing you ever made in craft time at bible school okay we'll take just a couple of minutes with that joe jones was just showing me uh Something he received, a book he received in Bible school 61 years ago. That's kind of crazy. A wordless book. It's really, really interesting. Okay, so what, some of you are much more artistic than I ever hoped to be. What'd you make in Bible school that, that was worth keeping? Okay, all right. Macaroni. I remember doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And then my friend, my daughter, which is four, made me a macaroni necklace. Hey, I'm surprised you didn't wear that today, but okay. You know, a macaroni necklace. Uh, Janet, what? We made an apron. An apron? In Bible school. Oh, yeah. How about that? I mean, that's a really practical thing made in Bible school. Um, you know, a, a macaroni jewelry box, I'm not so sure of. But, but that's a really practical thing. Now, Rhonda, Rhonda was telling me this morning she got in trouble because she took too much time making something. Probably making a cross. A cathedral, not just a church, out of popsicle sticks. Yeah, okay, it's probably in the Metropolitan Museum of Art now. All right, Laura? I need to, one still on our wall, a match, a burnt match cross. Yeah. Like, I oh, I remember those burnt yeah, match crosses, yeah. I was yeah. counselor that year, so I was, um, I was going to a different church. It was about 90, 94, 95 when I did that one. It's on our wall. But the other one I did, I was in sixth grade. And I was almost too old, but we did hymn book angels. I've seen those. Those are really crazy. cool. It yeah. Was oh, that was the, by the way, if we tried to do <laughs> burnt match crosses now, it would set the sprinkler system off in the church, <laughs> and uh, it wouldn't go well. All right. Now I want you. Yeah. I want you to go with me to Ezekiel 37, and I'm going to give you a little background. So um, uh, this is you're going to recognize some of this as we go through it. Um, um, so um, Ezekiel lived at the time that Jerusalem fell in 586 BC. So uh, we've been talking some about that season of history. Um, that exile was preceded by two others and he was in one of them. So the first one was in about 605 B.C. Um, that was the one that where Daniel and his friends were taken captive to Babylon. 
Um, the second one um, was the one where Ezekiel was kind of deported, uh, along with 10,000 of the elite citizenry in, in Jerusalem. And that, was, that one took place in about 597. Now, interestingly, if you want to contrast a little bit, if you read both of those books, Daniel and his friends um, were taken to serve in the king's palace. So, so Daniel was a courtier his whole life. Ezekiel ended up with, with uh, this entourage of 10,000 or so um, uh, exiled by the Kebar River um, where he writes, the spirit of the Lord was on him. So um, anyway, there, there's all kinds of word pictures that uh, Ezekiel uh, presents. You've heard, you, you're familiar with a lot of them. Um, uh, the Valley of the Dry Bones, you know. Uh, every time I think of that, with dim bones, dim bones are dry bones. And there's another one that, that Sandy Patty's dad used to sing about. Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air. I, I, I remember hearing him singing that thing a dozen times. Um, uh, Ron Patty used to sing that, that song with, with uh, uh, anyway. Uh, so so there were, that's an image that we recognize. The second one, um, and, and both of these interesting are in, are in chapter 37, uh, which is where we're going to be. Um, but the other one's not as familiar. So um, um, he has Ezekiel take two sticks. Rhonda wondered what I was doing with the hatchet in the backyard this morning. Now she knows. <laughs> two sticks. Uh, on one of the sticks, he is to write... Um, he is to write the name um, of, uh, he's to write belonging to Judah and, and the Israelites associated with him. And the other one, the second one, he's to write belonging to Joseph, that is to Ephraim and all the Israelites associated with him. And as he preaches then, he puts them together and talks about the restoration of one nation. Okay. I think I pulled that off pretty good. I, I, did, I didn't write the stuff on there. Uh, so, so where we're going to pick it up today is the explanation that follows that word picture, that illustration. And we'll start there in, uh, in verse 21. So, um, um, Brother Steve, could I get you to read to us 21 through 25 from Ezekiel 37? And say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them. And they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers live, they and their children and their children's children will live there forever. 
and David my servant will be their prince forever. Okay, so when the um, when the uh, chap when the, the, this passage begins with um, and he, he's going he's holding these sticks in one hand, and the connection then is with that connecting um, uh, word is he's going to explain what that's what that's all about. Now um, he's going to say. Um, Thus says the Lord, or your Bible may say the sovereign Lord. Does it say that in 21? Yes. Steve, read the first part of 21 again. Uh, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Okay. Right there. That little phrase. This is what the sovereign Lord says. That phrase occurs hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Every time you read it, you need to think, pay attention. This is what the sovereign Lord says. What does sovereign mean? Royal. It can mean royal, kingly, right? Above all. Uh, above all, part of it. So the idea is sovereign means ultimate authority. Okay? Uh, we don't see that a whole lot in our world um, because the kings that we normally see uh, only have limited authority. But sovereign means above all, uh, um, uh, unlimited authority, ultimate authority. Okay, so when he says that, and, and it's hundreds of times in the Bible, it's authoritative. Um, he's going to, um, uh, so um, he's going to talk here about a new life to come as he begins that in here. Now, let's look at a couple of images of that. I want you to go to 34.13, so back up a couple of pages. He said it before. He says it here in 37. He has said it in 34, 13. Uh, he says, I will bring them out from the, from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will uh, feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. Okay, and then go over to 39. Um, 39, and I'm going to start at verse 25. Another image uh, here. Therefore, says, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy in the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace and, and all their treachery which, which they perpetrated against me when they lived securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. So it, that passage, the idea is um, 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 previously, okay, he said it before, he's going to say it again, this day is coming. Um, there's, there'll be a return of some kind. We're going to try to unpack that a little bit. Now, it's unlikely. Okay, so now, um, can somebody go, while I'm, while I'm kind of talking here for a minute, can somebody go to James 1.1? 1, 1? Laura, if you go to James 1.1, 1, 1, we'll read that in just a second. <coughs> what you need to know is that during this period of time, as they were exiled in places like Assyria and Babylon, and, and they scattered to other parts of the earth, um, even even in the early early in the Book of Acts, they're scattered. So there's a there's a there's a uh, a scattering among the Jewish people that takes place. They're not all in Palestine anymore, and they will never really be there all together again. Despite what's being said here, we'll we'll look at what that means. This is called the diaspora or the diaspora. Uh, this, this 
dispersion of the Jewish people. Laura, read the first verse of James. The letter, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. Scattered. Okay. So, obviously, or it seems like it's unlikely that all those peoples that are scattered everywhere are going to return home to Palestine, to to um, uh, the old homeland that uh, Abraham would, would call Canaan. Some would choose not to come back. Some couldn't. Okay? So, um, uh, during that period of time, during the three or four hundred years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's interesting that synagogues begin to spring up. You know, by the time you read the New Testament, you're thinking, wait a minute, in the Old Testament, they're all going to the temple to worship. In uh, the New Testament, what's this synagogue business? It's not talked about in the Old Testament. It didn't happen in the Old Testament. It came about in between the two Testaments as an attempt to get the Jewish nation together as they were scattered wherever they went. And so that where there were a few families, they'd get together and start a synagogue. And, uh, and those things kind of grew. And actually, what you and I do on Sunday mornings is much more akin. Now, now it somewhat depends on what, what you do and which service you go to here. But it's much more akin to what they did in the synagogue in some ways than what they did in the temple back in the Old Testament. So, um, returning home here. There's this promise that they're going to return home, and yet I just said they're not all going to return home. What you need to know is that when the Bible talks about that, a lot of times it's talking about God's presence in your life. So let's think about that a little bit as we go on. Look at verse, verse 22. The expectation here is one nation under one king. Now, by the time uh, we get to the Old Testament, by the time even Ezekiel will come back, there's no longer a king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. Um, uh, there's, there are governors like Nehemiah that lead uh, during part of that time. Um, but um, so let me give you a little bit of Jewish history to kind of think about. In the year 931, Solomon, the second great king, really, of Israel, you remember the the, Saul was the first king. David was the greatest king. His son Solomon reigned after him. In 931, when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam made some really silly decisions. And the nation just split apart. So what you need to think about as you read the rest of the Old Testament, and some as you read references to it in the New Testament, is... So the 12 tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob, you remember Jacob was named Jacob, the deceiver, and God gave him a new name, Israel. He had 12 boys that, uh, if you read the book of Joshua, they're all going to get an apportionment of land, except for who? Levi. Levi would would be the priestly tribe, and they um, they would not receive a parcel of land. Um, but there's still 12 apportionments. Who got that spare apportionment? Well, one of, one of Jacob's sons became Joseph, the prime minister of Egypt. You can read that story in the book of Genesis. His two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
got their own apportionment. Their tribe got their own apportionment. So that kind of adds up to 12. When you take uh, Levi out, you add Joseph's two sons back in. So that's kind of what they're dealing with here. And and, um, as you and I think about it then, the northern 10, the northern 10 tribes become known as Israel, or sometimes they're even called Ephraim, called by one of the by the name of one of the sons of Joseph. So when you read Ephraim in prophetic literature like this, it's talking about the northern ten tribes that separated long before, and the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, became known simply as Judah. They took the name Judah. That got kind of contracted by Jesus' day to calling them Jews. That's kind of how that thing all went. So the idea here then is that um, will there be one king in one place like Jerusalem, like where David was, their golden days. Now, was the monarchy restored? No. Did it all happen geographically? No. So the the idea here is there's got to be something more uh, at at stake here than um, this We're not talking about a specific king in a specific geography. So we've got to be talking about a little bit, at least, of something else. Look at verse 23. Uh, He's going to use the word idol in verse 23. And he's going to use the word vile images. Now, those are kind of interchangeable. All right? Those are kind of interchangeable. Um, The word idol is used 49 times. Uh, 48 times, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament. 39 times of that, Ezekiel uses it. It's a pet word. The word that, or the, the expression that's, that's uh, translated vile images is used 50 times in the Bible. Ezekiel is six, uses 16 of those. And the two of them used together only happen about four times. I put those references, those other references here for you. There's another time in Ezekiel and then three other times. Idols, vile images. What you need to read when you think of those idols. So think of a little, um, I was uh, with my son last, uh, everybody was gone last Saturday night, and we watched a little bit of, uh, of Indiana Jones. And through part of that deal, he's got a little golden thing, the little idol that, that he loses. I don't know if he ever got it back. We didn't watch the end of the movie. But... but um, that vile image. Um, uh, uh, it's kind of the idea. So all the trouble they had, including exile, was a result of bowing down to that, whatever that was. So here's the question I'd leave for you, and, and this is not one you want to raise your hand and answer, okay? What is there in your life now that threatens to steal your attention and your devotion away from God alone. My guess is we've all made forays into some kind of idolatry. Maybe it was a job. Uh, You know, maybe it was a person that you put way too much store in, or a leader even. Okay, so it may be that occasionally, I've tried to do this for years and years, try to come to terms with what idolatry looks like in my world and of course, the truth is, all you got to watch do is watch a little bit of TV, and you'll figure out some of those, right? 
But how about for you? How about for me? I, I probably regularly ought to ask myself, Lord, is there anything in my life that's taken your place? And incidentally, coming together to worship on Sunday morning kind of helps us reset that. I acclaim him the greatest in words and, and songs of praise. So, think about that a little bit. Now, so in verse 24, it's interesting here, and this is going to be equally kind of confusing. I told Rhonda this is kind of hard to get through this passage here. The one king is identified. What do they call him here in verse 24? David. David. Now, David's been dead for 400 years when this is written. Does that mean he's going to be reincarnated? I don't think the Bible teaches reincarnation. I'm quite sure of it, in fact. Um, it's not that. Then it must be talking about a king like David. A king like David. And what I'm going to say, and let me have somebody, if you will. This is going to be tricky. John, find Jude 12. He's going to say, now wait a minute. Jude what 12? Just Jude 12. Okay, you understand when you get there. It's right before Revelation. That'll help you. Um, um, when you read uh, in Jeremiah 23, when you read Ezekiel's talk in, in chapter 34, he's going to talk about kings that were not good shepherds. He uses that imagery. Kings that, were, that should have led us and loved us and cared for us. And there were a lot of, there was a series of those that just were not. But in the New Testament, in John 10, there's a king like David in some ways, and much better, who identifies himself as, I am the good shepherd. Wow. Listen how Jude talks about this in uh, John in the 12th verse of the book of Jude. These men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualms, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted twice dead. Talking about false shepherds, leaders that are clouds without rain. But the one who's coming, Ezekiel says, won't be that way. He'll be a good shepherd, he says. And kind of this one king is identified. It, it kind of identified, makes an identification here with David. And so then in verse 25, he introduces a whole new idea that we're going to have to make sure we understand here a little bit. But in, in addition to the other promises of, of you, you're going to uh, have your fortune returned, your land back, all that kind of stuff. He uses the word forever. Put that in your blank. Okay? In some ways, return home will be permanent. But it may not mean eternal. It may mean to the end of the age. Uh, that idea. Somebody go to Psalm 132 and read verse 12. Psalm 132, 12. He'll get that one. Thank you, Brad. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I will teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. If. If. If they will. If. That's a huge word right there. 
if you'll throw away the idols. You know, one of the things you got to, with David, with all his other problems, he never bowed to an idol. Never led the country that way. Never led God's people that direction. You got to honor him for that. If I will place a king on the throne who will lead forever. And you and I serve him today. What a, what a beautiful image. Now, let's jump ahead. Uh, Cindy, can I come to you and have you read verse 26, 27, 28? I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. A covenant of peace. Now, what about the old covenant? What happened in it? They broke it and broke it and broke it and broke it. Therefore, it opens the way for the need for a new one. Covenant is a, a relationship, a, 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 an arrangement based on a relationship for two different entities that we both make promises, right? Uh, how long ago was it, Don, that you and I and Gloria stood together and you made a covenant? How long ago was it? 43 years. I'm glad you know that. <laughs> Me too. You, your stock just went up with Gloria right there. Made a promise, made a covenant. She made one back. And it works only if both of you keep that covenant, right? Well, how many times in the Old Testament do you read about the covenant being broken? So he says there's a new one coming. And uh, uh, Janet and Herb and Perry, I've got to look at you guys again. And I'm, I'm in this hymn sing yesterday morning in Tampa. And they're singing um, Kingdom of Peace. And again, you know, the tears, because I haven't sung that song in 25 years probably. Knew every word to it as, they, as we were singing it. Uh, the idea of a kingdom, of a covenant of peace. Now that phrase is only used four times in the Bible. It's used right here. I put the other references where it's uh, used here. Um, uh, take that back. It's used five times. But um, um, it's only used in three other books and three other places. But, but the idea here is um, it's a rare phrase. And that's because you and I are entering into a rare life. A covenant not based on anything else but just peace. Now, here's, here's a question I want you to think about. When in your lifetime have you experienced real peace? And, and by, by real peace, I mean not just an absence of conflict. Well, there's, you know, everything's kind of going okay. Uh, by the way, it doesn't last very long. It seems like the, you know, something will break. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, we had, we had, Wayne, I had to call a plumber the other day. How, how, how awful is that, you know? <laughs> Spend an afternoon with a plumber. Uh, because it, whatever it was, I couldn't fix it. An afternoon could be costly. It, it, dude, it was. It was. Um, but it's it, interesting that period of time, we just see snippets of it. It's a promise for something to come. Uh, the snippets of time where I'm living in peace. This, this idea. 
not just an absence of conflict, but there's something settled down deep inside that, that overrides all that stuff that we don't like for the way it's going. He says what's coming is a covenant of peace. And he promises here, it's interesting in verse 27, the point is not that God resides in a building. They got that wrong often. They use the temple as kind of a rabbit's foot. And when the temple goes away, what are you going to do? So the idea here is um, that God resides, uh, not that he resides in a building, but that he's living among his people. Now, uh, I want you to, we're not going to look at it now. I just want you to think about reading a, a passage maybe as you're getting yourself ready for worship in a little bit. John 14, 23, Jesus talks about, I'm going to come in and live with you. What a, what a wonderful promise. Now, if you really want, and, and I looked it up on my phone while I was waiting for my buddy to get in the car this morning. I can pull it up as a PDF in my car just like that. It's called, the article, it's about a four-page article called My Heart, Christ's Home. Anybody ever read it? My Heart, Christ's Home. It's written by a guy by the name of Robert Boyd Munger. And it's a, a description, a literal, physical, room-by-room -room description of what it would be like if Jesus moved in and lived in your heart as his home. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. My Heart, Christ's Home. Just write those four words down. Look, Google them. It'll come up right like that. Okay? It'll come up before you get to home. I'm going to tell you. What would it be like if you and I would allow Jesus to settle down in my heart? Room by room by room. Laura. You know, you mentioned that uh, covenant people, maybe, to me, dwindling. You can see that even today. That um, I feel like the church people are praying more. Christians are praying more for revival and for... Um, those who put us down and marginalized, we're marginalized today because we, to them, are breaking the laws. And they are changing the laws in Congress because of all these new stuff. It's getting closer and closer that we will be the enemy. Is prayer over these things ever more needed than it is today? Yes, even yeah. politics. And pray for Washington. Pray for your oh, local yeah. government. Pray for your governors and everyone around you. Right. Keep praying. Yeah. It doesn't matter who's up there. Democrat, Republican, whatever. And what's Pray. beautiful about that is God lives here. He lives among, not in this building. I see him every time I'm here. But he's not hanging out here. <laughs> he lives in you. So, um, look at verse 28. I want to read it. Again, verse 28. And I'll land the plane. And the nations will know that I'm the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. There is a concern here. I wrote several references down. Like, for instance, 20 verse 9, where God seems to be concerned about his own reputation in the world. I find that intri intriguing. Um, his own reputation in the world. So, so here we go. Um, but I acted for the sake of my name, 
that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So the idea here is that God has a concern, it seems like, in all those references that I put there. He's got a concern for his reputation, my name. Uh, I also put a reference there uh, in, in the book of Revelation where he's talking about the nation's will recognize the reputation of God. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's talking about here when it says nations, non-Israelites. So <laughs> I had a funny week. I, I would end up on an <coughs> elevator with somebody from Kingston, Jamaica, or I'd end up on the elevator with somebody from uh, um, uh, Myanmar, some places like that, because there are people that, at this meeting from all over the world. And um, uh, so... I had a conversation yesterday. Rhonda, you don't even know about this. Had a conversation yesterday with a Cuban, with a couple. He was from Cuba. She was from Honduras. They met somewhere and got married. They're now working, establishing churches in Spain. They live in Madrid. And I'm going to hook them up to Hector and Kylie. Hector is from Valencia. Valencia. Okay, he's from Guess where Kylie's from? Durant. <laughs> but they're going to live in Valencia. We don't have a church in Valencia. But this couple wants to start a church in Valencia. And I want them to meet these two kids that I've been in a discipling relationship for two years that I think when he goes back, what's his options going to be? And he said to me, when we talked last week, he said, I'm, I'm reading the Bible you gave me. God is concerned about his reputation among peoples all over the world. And guess what? You and I are holding the keys to that reputation. How it will live out. So, Laura, you mentioned something along this line a minute ago. I, I, I want to kind of challenge you with something as we close. All right? I want to challenge you. Sometimes uh, we will make the claim, and we've, we've heard politicians make the claim uh, years ago, maybe not anymore because God's reputation doesn't seem to matter anymore except to you and me. Before assuming God is on our side... I need to be asking the question, am I on his side? And I will just say it to you this way from, from our study from today. I, need, I think I need to call you and me, and I'm going to start it with me, to live in such a way that every day of my life, I live to make God famous. You know? I live in such a way to make Jesus the one of renown among all names ever. Am I living in such a way that I'm making Jesus and God the Father famous, renowned? All right. Thanks for going with me through this. Have a great Sunday.